there are more acts, and I believe that the next acts are going to hopefully make people really happy. Well, it's three. There's three acts, right? We've seen two of the three. I think there might be more there acts. Be more. There could be many acts. There's a little more than that. Years I, I don't remember if it's iambic pentameter, three acts, five acts. There's some acts. <laughs> That's perfect. What is going on, Watch Fam? My name is Zach. I am here with the first episode of the Burlingame and Park podcast, home here in Burlingame, California at Topper Jewelers. Now, why Burlingame and Park? I'm here with my co-host, Rob Kaplan, who is also joined today by his brother, Russ Kaplan. And we are going to take you guys through the origin story of this store and the podcast. Let's get into it. Rob, great to have you here. Thank you so much for joining us. This is the first episode. What are we doing here? Well, this is certainly a long time in the making. We've been talking about doing a podcast since probably before the first podcast ever showed up on Spotify, and here we are actually doing it. That's actually true. And Russ, I feel like when we mentioned the idea of bringing a podcast into the Topper story, you were like, finally, we're doing this, but nobody said that we were waiting for this to happen. Yeah, it's kind of funny. I think that everybody said, but I thought you didn't want it. I'm going, we definitely want to do this. We're very pleased to finally be doing this. That's amazing. I think there are always these like little impediments that keep you from doing it like we could never come up with a name that we all agreed was cool and ultimately i think had we come up with this name like two years ago we'd be on episode 90 yeah right but now, i also <laughs> think celebrating <laughs> yeah <laughs> but at the beginning of it you gotta admit you also wanted to find a dark silent closet practically to be able to do this in and we finally came to the conclusion of okay that's great but why don't we just do it in the store for a little context, if you are a Topper customer, if you've ever come into the store and you've had a chance to talk to Rob for more than 30 seconds, I would consider that a win. There's interruptions constantly happening. And I actually kind of love the fact that like we have this epic new store that opened last fall. Congratulations to both of you. And now we actually have like a pretty cool space to record. And so why would we do it in a closet? We have the Breitling Lounge here. We have the bar. We have all of these little spots that we can... So uh, apparently we can we're leaning into the interruptions. We, <laughs> we are exactly. leaning into the interruptions. My favorite thing too is... like. Fun podcast. If you're ever in Rob's office, you talk for 20 seconds. Hold on a second. Hold on a second. Okay, what? Hold on a second. Okay, what? Yeah, We're it's, really, to be it's here. really fun for me to tell. As <laughs> <laughs> yes, I'm sure it is. <laughs> well, we are here at Burlingame Avenue and the intersection of Burlingame Avenue and Park Street, Park Avenue, Park something. It has it's a very just, I think like it just be park. I don't know. I think it's just park. It has a very Hollywood and Vine kind of a feel to it. But the new Topper store is right at the intersection of the two. It forms a neat little T with a uh, nice little mosaic pattern. Nice little mosaic pattern as well. One could call it the landscaping, if not cultural, epicenter of Burlingame. <laughs> this is very true. This is very true, and it's quite a long time coming too. Because I know the new store was under construction. It's been in the works for a long time. But this is the third iteration of the Topper story, or is it the well? Where do, where does the Topper story really begin? Does it begin with the great Yudi Marksman? Does it begin with the Topper brothers, Arthur Kaplan, William Kaplan? Where does the Topper story hold, begin? Hold that thought. Right, let's do a quick wrist check here, fellas. We got to do a wrist check, the customary wristwatch check. We cannot rank amongst the top watch podcasts unless the boys do a wrist check. Yeah, there's a mandate for that. There in, is a mandate. In, in a fine, I think. Uh, there's not only a fine, but Spotify will dock you in stars. results. You lose Correct. stars, you lose listenership. So we'd love to get on the podium for the Top Watch podcast. We'll get there. Rob, what are you wearing today? I'm wearing my favorite modern Seiko, the 2017 SLA 017 tribute to 62 Moss. 
Listener, it's important to note that Rob knows every Seiko reference. So not ever. true. The JDMs are very confusing. <laughs> Maybe the ones over $500 released <laughs> in the US market for the last eight years, but let's not gild the lily. That's the second time I've heard gilding lily reference today. It's the hat on the hat. Yeah, yeah hat on a hat. One of my favorite expressions. That's quite good. Don't put a hat on a hat. We will get into more of Rob's encyclopedic knowledge of Seiko reference numbers. Grand Seiko, Seiko, some JDM fuzziness, it sounds like. It digital. Omega. <laughs> Speaking of HG Omega, 2006. Not an Omega. Oh, this is not an Omega. No. So Russ, 2000, 2006 was the year they went yes. from eight to 15 digits, <laughs> and I gave up. I was but gonna I, say it was the year I certainly gave up. You still, I don't know, no, I gave up. But I still yeah, remember no. all the eight digits from 2000 to 2005. I didn't ask for it. They, they're just we, there. And we will get into that a little bit when we talk a little bit more about the history of the store, because there is a reason why a topper podcast is relevant within the watch space, and we'll get into that more later. But before we do that, Russ, what are you wearing? I have a Omega 300 Pro on with my favorite mesh bracelet, which I just love on the watch, which is... I have to say, Changes this is the, watch for me. the best way to wear the Seamaster 300. And not only that, you were selling that bracelet here at Topper before they were available at yep. Omega, from what I understand. Ahead of the curve, per usual. I mean, I'm sure there's some whip-smart boutique somewhere that was selling them before we were. But as soon as the steel bracelet became available, as our boutique manager, Ron Juan, loves the mesh look. And our joke is, because every time somebody comes in, he shows them uh, the steel mesh. Ron is changing the Omega landscape one mesh bracelet at a time. Well, it certainly changed the look on your wrist, Russ. I love that watch. And actually, I would love to get that mesh bracelet. I have the original OEM mesh that came on my... So I have a 2500 series Planet Ocean Liquid Metal LE. This is my favorite Omega Seamaster they've ever made. Something about perfect proportions. You know, it is. But what's funny about this is there's a reason, you know, everybody wishes that Omega would do a smaller Seamaster Planet Ocean, but I don't think they ever will because I think it's the Seamaster 300. They can't have two smaller, you know, 41-ish millimeter divers in the collection. They have the super diver and they have like the 300 meter diver and i think they coexist really nicely by the way i've got good news for you when it comes to that mesh bracelet you want you know the right guys i <laughs> certainly do and actually it's quite funny because back in the day when this is so this is a coaxial 2500 series caliber that's in here and there is Perhaps an oem 2500 caliber d <laughs> it, it uh, you know what it's actually a c so i had Ooh. a d i did it have a d have caliber level no it does not so it's not we're not quite there the liquid metal le was not produced with a d series caliber but i did use to yeah because that came out in 2000 11, the D-series. But what makes this unique is the first time they did ceramic and liquid metal in the bezel. They did a full ceramic dial. I think it was the second Omega that they'd done with a ceramic dial. Anyway, this is my favorite Omega Seamaster. I don't think they'll do them in this size with Planet Ocean. It's the Super Diver. It's supposed to be a little bigger. It's supposed to be a little thicker. I feel like that's kind of the brief. But the mesh bracelet that you used to be able to buy on this, the OEM, because I got the stock number, not from Ron, it was from a different forums, and the clasp, it's the Ploprof clasp on it. And the clasp is almost as large as the watch head itself. So Very large It's clasp, quite yes. large. So quite nice to see the smaller mesh. It's a little more manageable. It tucks in really nicely. So Omega and Seiko, these are two big brands for Topper. It's good company, good representation here. So that's always exciting. So we've been talking about Omega. There is an Omega boutique here now. Yes. Russ, where did that come from? That came largely from the fact that Omega was willing to let us do it. It was very exciting to have it. So it's pretty cool because we had kind of outgrown what we had before and we were kind of pushing out at the edges so we could finally give people the kind of experience we'd like to. So it's, it's, it's very fun to visit, I think. 
amazing. I mean, it's actually like a proper hangout. And I feel like Topper, for me personally, and we'll get into this later in other episodes of the podcast, but Topper's always kind of been a hang, I would say. And I think a lot of folks in the watch community would, would agree with that. Now, again, we sort of have the setup for it actually to be great hang in addition to the boutiques. That's amazing. So anyway, what I wanted to get into was where did the name Topper come from? And I know you boys are second generation, third generation? Third. Well, third or third and a half, depending on how you count. But <laughs> keeping track. Yeah. The name came from the Topper brothers. It was their last name. So our family wasn't the ones that started the business. I always joke that we're the newcomers. My The business was started in 1940, and my great uncle, Yudi Markson, purchased the business in 1947, and my grandfather ran the business for him and eventually bought it. That's amazing. And it was not in Silicon Valley. It was not Absolutely in not. the Bay Area nope. before. So where the, were we? The stores that they bought were in, well, the stores they had, they were in Modesto, Merced, and Porterville. So there were three stores. And eventually, when my grandfather bought the business, he bought the two larger stores, which is a store in Modesto and Merced. And then ultimately in the 60s, my dad opened up a store in Mountain View. And we eventually opened up a second store in Modesto with plans on closing the first one. And after the second one was open, the first one kept on doing business. So instead of closing, we kept it open for like the next 30 years and <laughs> happy, li- yeah, happy exactly. little accident <laughs> exactly anyways and eventually when we opened up the store in Burlingham at the time we opened up the store in Burlingham we really kind of moved the store from Mountain View really to Burlingame we had a corporate office that was separate from any of the stores moved it in together the death of my Saturdays and when that happened business gradually grew to a place where it eclipsed the rest of the business we had the opportunity to either sell or close the balance of the stores we did which was falls under easy business decision hard personnel decisions because had Team members have been this a lot of time. That kind of stuff. It's painful. So if we're contractually obligated to do risk checks, I'm contractually obligated to mention the movie American Graffiti whenever Modesto is brought up. So I always like to think of my grandfather and my father like dodging drag races down the main streets of Modesto on his way uh, to sell jewelry and watches in those early stores in the 50s. And I imagine him stopping off at malt shops. And, and I've got news. If you don't know the two of us, my brother is 13 years younger than I am. And when American Graffiti came out. It came out a long time ago. Anyways, when it came Before out. Star Wars, George Lucas, what, right. 74, 75? Yeah. I don't so know anyways, you were very, to say you were little was an understatement. Yeah. Anyways, when they came out, you have no idea how happy that movie made both my father and my grandfather, both of whom started telling all kinds of stories about Modesto, oh, what they amazing. saw. It's amazing. It put it on the map. I will have to say that I've spent a little time in Modesto, maybe not enough to know sort of the character of it, and I do need to brush up on American Graffiti. I'm partial to Burlingame. It's pretty awesome here. A couple quick flashbacks. Last questions for you. Who's a better skier? Oh, definitely Russ. <laughs> okay, perfect. Although Russ is like a real skier. Russ was a, a ski instructor at the resort that is now known as Palisades. Yeah, but I've heard you charge too. You um, charge. So anyway, when I did ski team for one year in Davis... And we found out I was like mid-level B-team ski racer. <laughs> and Russ visited our team for one day. And they said that he would have been like a lower level A-team skier because his problem was he was too pretty the way he skied. Yeah. He skied with really pretty form. And the coach <laughs> would yell at him, stop skiing so pretty. Those turns are too pretty. This is always my look good, go slow. That's me. <laughs> look pro, go slow. Yes, That's oh what God. we say in the cycling space for sure. <laughs> I love that. Rob, I, I've heard stories of you you kind of grew up around the store. Russ, I don't feel like I've heard quite as many of those stories. So this store opened up when I was like just finishing high school. Oh, uh, right. Like okay. the, I mean, your first when job. I say this store, I mean 1315 Burlingame Avenue. Right. And listener, 1315 Burlingame Avenue, the location of the most pre 
previous iteration of the store, which maybe you were familiar with, is down the street about, what, a block and a half? Yeah, half a block. Half a block. But as we all know, it's a lot of effort and time and work to move across the street. By the by, you're not just carrying boxes. The store across the street was not Rob's first job at Topper Jewelers. There you go. He had a much more illustrious job, which he will be happy to tell you about. I had a really, really good job when I was. Was it above board or below board? It was above board. Oh, yeah. Paychecks the whole night. No, no, no. Apparently, early Topper was really into credit jewelry financing. And apparently, we switched banks when I was 15 years old, which would have been like 87, I guess. And apparently, every account receivable, which then, very early computers, were like on index cards. So we had thousands of accounts receivables and people making payments on their jewelry. Every single one needed a stamp from a bank. So I spent like my first topper job was spending like three weeks just stamping, just going to junk, to junk. Like, like the worst you can imagine of the DMV without like the sour cigarettes. That's just what I did. I just stamped. But my first unofficial job below board and below desk. My dad was not the best at managing one point diamonds. So he would always be sorting like little, little diamonds for jobs and sorting them for customer jobs. And so I used to love looking under his desk, seeing if I could find like one point, two point diamonds. And it seems like every time I found one, I think these things were always worth like a dollar. My dad would lie to me and he'd be like, oh, the, you, that's at least $30 what you just found there. <laughs> oh they were like goodness. practically valueless. And I'd be like on some important call. I'm like, dad, dad, I found one. Look, they're, they're more than you, that's not it's true. a one pointer. They were worth five, six, seven dollars. No, no, really. They, they always, he always seemed not, it seemed maybe a little lower on the important scale yeah, than, than like seven-year-old me thought. No, no, you'll be I happy to know. Yeah. My kids shared that exact same the, experience. That was they the would best. also go under my desk and hunt for little tiny stoves. And then the worst would be... Has the value gone up over the years? No, <laughs> no, no a okay, little bit. Same. Maybe. The, the worst would be you'd then go out in the street <laughs> and you'd see something shiny in the oh, yeah. street. Your chances of it being a diamond outside of Zero. that desk area, much lower. Much, much lower. And Russ, so you maybe didn't grow up in the store so much. But he grew up no, with, with a central office being yeah. in, in Nobre. Mm, so in the nice. 70s and 80s, the central office of all of the stores, that's where my dad went. So he didn't go to Modesto Merced unless it was holiday season, important season, visiting trip. The day-to-day was out of a central office with no store in Nobre. office. So that's where I did my bank stamping, and that's where I did my diamond hunting. I'm going to need to see this stamping experience on your LinkedIn. We can follow up. With yeah, I'm going to definitely five. get it there. All right, boys. What was the first watch that registered in your collective consciousness as a watch? That I sold or that? Uh, maybe that you wore, like the first watch that the you watch that I wore recognized easy. in the case and kind of became the thing that you got. Like, you know, the easy question is, what's the watch that got you into watches? And it's such a cliche, but I don't think anybody knows. So let's hear well, it. The first watch that I had that I remember is very, very clear to me because we used to have these Christmas mailers that if you maybe bought a certain thing, you would get a gift or whatever. Anyways, one of the gift items was a Batman watch. And I was six or seven years old and I wanted that Batman watch really badly. And my dad, when he came home after finishing up Christmas, brought me the Batman watch. And the thing that I remember the absolute most about it, it came in this, I can only describe it as this crazy hermetically sealed box. And I was so excited about the watch and it had to take us an hour and a half. In my head, it was like all night to get the stupid box open so I could finally get to the watch. Do you still have the Batman watch? Sadly, I People do not. I don't remember the watch nearly as well as the box, but I do remember the watch too. I've certainly hurt myself on these kinds of packages before. They're not easy to open. No. 
Rob, I think I know the answer to this, but the first watch, I'm going to try to guess. This would be like the couple's game where you're supposed to like guess about yeah. your partner. It was a Tag Heuer. So that was the first watch I actually saved up with my own money because my second work experience was we did have a store in Mountain View in the now retired, demolished San Antonio shopping mall where we didn't have so much. Wait, wait, hold on, hold on. I really like how you said retired instead of <laughs> just destroyed. <laughs> retired yeah. listener, retired is sort of the, the re- blanket term yeah. when something gets discontinued yeah. and the yeah. Swiss need to say it, you know, a nice way to say like, yeah, that wasn't selling very well. So we retired it. I'm like, no, no, okay. No, they raised them all yeah, to the ground. Who are we that, kidding? They blew that thing up. <laughs> okay. So, sorry, uh, go on. yeah. So we were right. I think we, our store was right next to, uh, across the street was B Dalton books and near the frozen yogurt shop and the, <laughs> the diamond center and the hobby store. Sears. Sears was, Sears was, was the, very close. We're going to pour one out for by Sears the way, and by the way, care in folks. Case, in case you're curious, Great when concrete courtyard. Picking <laughs> Beautiful out use of shopping concrete. centers. The original place we were in in Mountain View was a shopping center called Mayfield Mall. Mayfield Mall was the first shopping center on the peninsula. This things developed. The trouble with it is it only had basically two apartment stores, which wasn't enough to be sort of a regional center. So it ended up by getting demolished when, and we still had a whole bunch of lease left. So that's how it is that we wound up in the second shopping center. And then that got demolished. And that's kind of in a way how we ended up here. So we have an just, excellent, just, just, excellent taste. Just staying a few steps ahead of the wrecking ball. We're just yeah. <laughs> happily rolling it out and it was in no yeah. danger of being demolished. Yeah. Well, that's good. The space we're in now, listeners just to set the stage, has a beautiful skylight and nice lighting and big tall ceilings, nice wood floors. It doesn't feel like the Sears Roebuck multiple. No. But when I was there and we did not have very many customers, <laughs> I would flip through the Tag Heuer catalog and my brother had recently purchased a Tag Series 2000 steel and gold and I loved the galvanized dial and I really knew what that was then too. I could have really said that word. But I decided I needed the more octagonal Series 3000, which I still have. Was the store a Tag Heuer retail at the time. We were. Yeah, it was. I mean, yeah. Russ was in okay. a way ahead of his time in that he put in some amazing brands early like Tag Heuer and some brands that would never be anything like Seiko LaSalle, the Swiss made Seiko. That was prior to me. That was dad. Oh, well, way to go, dad. But what's incredible about it, though, is is that it's apparent to me now, and I'll let you finish the specific watch you were referencing. <laughs> But the passion for the product, and I mean, this has always been a store and a space like for collectors, by collectors, to a certain degree, for enthusiasts, by enthusiasts. And I think that rings true with the brand selection that we have now, that the store has now. It's very like indie and enthusiast focused, which is incredible. But I feel like those are really strong traditions to carry. Anyway, Tagware Series 2000, inspired by your brother. Where are we landing? Let's land this one. So anyway, I saved up all summer and ended up buying a 3000 Series. And it had to be a 3000 Series because Russ has has a 2000 Series. about Tag Heuer. Speaking of things that got retired quickly, it would be the 3000 yeah. series. Yeah, There's no I think it, for taste. I think this so-called upgraded model with beautiful rubber balls on the side of the bezel, and I think there are like three of them left in the world. <laughs> like three of those little rubber balls left on the bezel. The rest have fallen off. You still was, have this watch? Yeah, for sure. It's in the case. But that was the first watch I bought with my own money. I don't have as clear a recall of like what six-year-old, eight-year-old, ten-year-old me liked. 
I clearly remember getting a bar mitzvah swatch that I loved. And I remember like if I would sleep with it and I put my hand the wrong way, it would wake me up because the court's movements were so loud. I clearly <laughs> remember echoing that. echoing through the case. I feel like there are a lot of kids that have that specific memory. I mean, the case is like an echo. Yeah. I, mean, I just remember well like, like if, you put, if you like put your yeah. ear on your hand the wrong way, it sounded like <laughs> louder than the ocean in a shell. Okay. So what was the last question? And I'll give this to whomever is the most qualified to answer it. But what was kind of the flagship? product of the store then and what is the flagship product of the store now actually it never changed it was omega then and it's omega now that's amazing very cool Unless we're talking about big diamonds so the omegas being sold at that time would have this is pre-bond era yes okay pre-bond so 80s so bond starts in like so interestingly enough when my father went into business with his dad, which was my dad was a lawyer, practiced law for a while, and then decided that he really hated what he was doing and went to business with his dad. When he did, it was about 1962, and that was one of the very first things he did when he started in the business was put in Omega. So we've been a dealer ever since then with maybe a few years off sometime in the early 80s when Omega maybe wasn't Yep. Wasn't quite. It was a, I mean, this is the pre Bouvier era yes. of Omega. I mean, yep. it was a brand that was trying to figure out what its identity, you know, following the quartz crisis. So the answer to what we saw. And we, we sold, sold Longin too? Correct. Uh, we have some old. Uh, how, do you, how do you say it? How do you say it? Set the record straight. Did I set right? No, I, I'm just kidding. You. <laughs> uh, uh, long <laughs> jeans. Long jeans. Yeah, long jeans, fam. You heard it here first. We Sorry. actually have some old posters of like. Old, I've um, seen them. Ultracron yeah, in the hallway. Yeah, yeah. So it's amazing, and I feel like this is. I want to put a pin in this because I feel like this is an important distinction because in the watch community, and this is why I loved the idea of doing a, a podcast under the Berlin Game umbrella because between the two of you, you have so much institutional knowledge of many of the current brands that people love. You know, if you're just joining the watch collecting community or you just joined in the last three to five years and you know the Omega Speedmaster and you know the Seamaster and you know Bond, these guys know 30 years prior to all of that and all of the context behind why those products exist. And I think that's amazing to see. So both of you essentially saw the handoff and the explosion of Omega following Goldeneye, the film, and how the Seamaster 300, and that was really kind of about when I started paying attention to watches. Like a Seamaster was always kind of, you started seeing signs for them on the highway and then suddenly like it was on the movie and then it was in the GoldenEye video game. And then suddenly like it was just kind of cemented in the back of your mind is like, this is something like to aspire to. But I feel like you guys were already 15 or 20 years in the game at that point. Yeah, I mean, and it's I, amazing. I can go back way before that. I, <laughs> when I was maybe 10, 11, 12 years old, I would go with my dad into our store in Mountain View. We had this manager, Max, in the store who was like this old school sales guy. He was a World War II veteran. Good guy, but definitely a salesman, salesman kind of guy. And I would go in there and he would always pick up the biggest flight master you could think of, the most colorful thing. And he'd always, I'd never quite figure out where I was going with my father. And I still remember at the time thinking, this is kind of odd. It'd say to him, you really should open up a junior account for him for this one. Like this, because he's looking at this giant watch. Too bad he Damn didn't. it, I wish he it had. It was like 200 bucks. <laughs> I know. <laughs> Those things are so cool. And Rob, one of you fellas has a very cool vintage Seamaster 300. So you guys have some very cool stuff of the period. So we'll- I mean, a lot of the vintage stuff we have, with almost no exceptions, and there are a few exceptions, um, are 
stuff that we've just acquired later over the years. I mean, I think the watch community and sort of the general understanding of how what made those pieces special and what makes them special now and collectible maybe wasn't. I mean, because again, the pieces now that are sort of everyday for us now in 20 or 30 years are going to be like, man, I should have bought two Flight Masters. Like, <laughs> I think that many people know doing limited editions and special editions are some of the parts of the business that we love the most. And I think whenever you look at what people now consider our best of breed pieces from earlier eras or just what then were considered best of breed pieces. It can go a long way to helping you sort of try to find some kind of connective truth to what makes something a piece that people are going to like for a long time. So a lot of the vintage pieces we have, we just have for inspiration. Yeah. And Topper was really in on that pretty early, I would say, just in terms of like recognizing what the community either thinks is interesting now or could be interesting later. What was the first collab we did with any brand? I know now every brand, every retailer, everybody's doing collabs. Not everybody was doing them when Topper did its first collab. Yeah. What was it? 2015 was the year we did our first two collabs. They were to celebrate the 75th anniversary of Topper. Yeah. There was a Nomos Tangente 38 and there was a Vermont MB2. Those were the first two that came out within a month or two of each other. This is kind of before the watch community moved onto Instagram and mass. We're still on, That's right. true. We're still on the forums. We're yeah, still very virtually. Right watch talk forums, yeah. time zone, watch you seek. That was the space. Right. And you know, we were so young then. We weren't the first independent jeweler to do it. I think Timeless Luxury yep. in Texas uh, those boys. came out with a few pieces, I think the year before. And I think we looked around very quickly. And the first year, we really thought, well, if we're going to do it, it has to be celebrating something about us. And then the next year, when we came out with the Oris Diver 65, the, not the Maxi from 2020, but the original from 2016, we basically took the view of, well, why does it have to be about us? Why can't we just make the best watch we can make? And something that we thought people would find interesting. So that's an important first watch for us. I love that. I feel like that's always been a really strong part of the brand's identity, which makes it really special. Well, speaking of what's new and what's coming, collabs and all that, I know there's stuff we can talk about and stuff we can't talk about. Russ, you're a few short days from casting off to Watches and Wonders in Switzerland. What are we hoping to see? What can we talk about? What are we hoping to see? Well, the sad truth is there's really not in some ways that much I can talk about. However, I am really looking forward to, and it's not fair because actually most of it this year I don't know about, but a little of it I do. And one of my favorite things that's coming is from Zenith, and I can't wait for what it is, and I can't really talk about it yet because I promised I wouldn't. But (laughs) (laughs) I think people are are really going to like it. I think people are really going to like it. It is a big deal. Yeah, yeah, it's always great when everybody in a podcast knows what the thing is. And yes, all three of us it. are like, well, I really hope they do blank when they know that blank is in production. Yeah. But I will say this. Five, okay. six years ago, there was a category of Zenith Watch that was right after El Primero the time, Chronomaster 38s and Chronomaster 42s, the most popular part. And for the past two years, it's been va- it's been basically dormant. And it's about time for that part to make a resurgence. I love it. And something very connected to their history. So yeah. you are talking specifically about the Terry Nitaf era of Zenith. Yeah. The, right? The defies from the... Yeah. Zach always has a fantasy that Russ and I are going to talk about. In 2006, we went to Dubai and... 
we placed our opening orders for the most dramatic avant-garde over-the-top period of Zenith's history. He always wants to hear about Terry and Russ is smiling. Fountain. Russ is leaning, listener. Russ is leaning the back tri- in his chair and smiling the, the tr- fondly. Yeah, there's actually a lot of shaking my head. In the yeah, <laughs> yeah. The, the trip, the midnight walk through the desert. Oh, when he called a falcon in the middle of a product presentation. There's a lot of good we had dancing when, girls on stage. That was when good. we yeah. were when we were discussing what was going to be in the Topper podcast. I said we have to have Terry and Tough stories, or it's yeah. not worth doing. So right. we will probably have an entire yeah. episode right about Terry. There will be falcons, midnight walks, and a boat ride to place your order. But we'll save Actually, that for another that, time. It's a boat ride to an island to place your order, and when the boat leaves and you're left on the island, that's probably yeah. not. If they the don't like your sign. order. You yeah, don't get a boat back. Swim back. <laughs> Oh my goodness. These were these were these were special watches. Those were special days. But the Zenith now is That is not the era of Zenith. Not the Zenith that was now. coming back. And quite frankly, the Zenith now is firing on all cylinders every single one. Actually, the watch that is coming, the thing that's exciting to me about it, and it is really exciting for me, is that it's taking something that some people might look at as being a little fringy and it's gonna become very core. So I'm very That's a great way so to describe w- it. So the Terry Natoff thing really points out a question <laughs> of when you look back on a piece if it's one of the things that will make it truly great art versus good art, if we're calling watches art, which in my mind I do somewhere. 100%. If you can tell exactly when it's made by the piece, it's probably not great art. If you look at a 2002 Balmarcier Capeland and you look at the bezel and you're like, this is how they did it in the early 2000s. That is 100% accurate. And, and the same could be said about Blanc Pond's trilogy series, also early 2000s. Yes. You look at those big, deep relief bezels and you're like, yep, yes. that was probably between 2000 and 2005. Right. So I think that we really want to see pieces that you can't tell when 20 years from yep. now when people look back on it. It won't just the first thing that hits you in the head is the year it was made. Completely and agree. Think, and you look in the Zenith case right now and that's exactly yep. what you see. I mean, you've got pieces now that, okay, over time they can evolve and that's great, but hopefully they're not going to over time just disappear. I think they've got some pieces that are just pretty timeless. I agree. I think it'll be a big launch at the show for sure. People will be talking about that. Very cool. We're going to put a bow on this here in a few moments, but we do want to talk about, so following Watches and Water. So all of these things will be debuting at the end of this month, but Topper's actually doing something very new in April. Rob, you want to take us through this? Right. So we thought about what the name of this thing would be for about six weeks. We're having a first look event, which is where we're inviting a lot of our partners to come. And if they have uh, prototypes that can make their way back from Switzerland in time, great. If they don't have prototypes that can make their way, it's at least going to be a chance for representatives of the brand to come and connect with people that are in the Bay Area. Yeah, And it's basically a three-day party here in the store with stuff fresh off of Watches and Wonders. It's a two-day party here in the store. <laughs> Russ holding up two big fingers. Two-day party here in the store. And again, you know, as a fan and a collector, if you don't make the trip to Switzerland, oftentimes, like, you're pre-ordering stuff sight unseen, right. and you don't ever, you may not see it until it actually shows up in the store many months later. And so when some uh, brand's prototypes are stuck in customs and don't make our <laughs> event, you'll be doing that after you visit our that event. Is, that is highly possible. <laughs> So that is exciting. Yeah. What are the dates of these? What are the two days? April 14th and 15th. The, you know, the, the Friday, Saturday. April 1-4, April 1-4. But I jokingly, because of my fear and paranoia of disappointing people, I wanted to not call it the first look event. I wanted to call it the home opener. A couple of reasons. Home opener, because we're opening our home to the community. But also, a home opener is like in sports. It's a team's first home game after the season starts. So technically, you could say Watches and Wonders is the start of 
watch season. It will have happened a few weeks before. And then this is like our first home game after Watches and Wonders. But somehow, despite the genius of it in my mind, it apparently apparently uh, turned into first look. And like many (laughs) of my ideas, killed in committee. (laughs) The good news is he listened to us. It was killed in committee. It was not a bad idea. It was very punny, as many of your references So anytime you come to a brand and you're hoping to see the prototype, that it's not there, just remember, it was supposed to be the home opener. That's right. We'll pour one out for the home opener. It is the first look event. It is April 14th and April 15th here in Burlingame. And that's actually not the only event that we have on the calendar. There's one other event. That probably have already happened by the time. By the time this this runs TBD, there's a special Breitling event that we are going to be hosting, I believe, on the 21st of March here in the Breitling Lounge. And while we're speaking about things that we can't speak about, Breitling will be launching something and it will be here. And we can't be too specific about dates and times and that sort of thing. But, but uh, I'm very happy with this collection. Rob is it's very, very happy cool. with this Me too. It is very cool. And it's going to be very cool here in store. You can RSVP our friends at Watch the Bay Meetups via their Instagram. You can RSVP there. You'll see it on the top of our Instagram as well. So yeah, things are about to get pretty busy. This will publish. Uh, the Breitling event will happen. Watches and Wonders. Russ, we are going to check in yeah. at Watches and Wonders. Rob, we're going to check in at Watches and Wonders. We're going to have a dedicated GS9 event in May. We do have a pretty full calendar this summer. Topper was always the place to be. And this year, it's really, really going to be. Now it's the place to be without feeling like a sardine. <laughs> this is I don't know. First look might be a little sardinish. We'll have to see how that goes. TBD. We have the fire marshal on speed dial just in case. Excellent. Boys, thank you very much for joining me. Listener, thank you for joining us on the inaugural episode of Berlin Game and Park. We promise we'll have more Terry Nataf stories coming up. We'll have more stories about the many brands that Topper carries. We'll have more stories about the specific watches that'll be coming out later this year. We have some amazing guests in the pipeline that are going to be joining us as well to bring more color and commentary into the watch space. But at the end of the day, this is the place to be and Topper here in Berlin Game is the store to be in. So thank you for joining us, boys. Thanks again. 